This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. Three days after Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, I was asked to um, make my first appearance on Morning Joe on MSNBC. And um, so I went there to 30 Rock uh, early in the morning, and I was joined by our guest here today on Rumble. Uh, he and I and a couple of others, we began a conversation about what just happened. How did it happen? And um, Joe Scarborough did not break for a commercial for nearly 45 minutes. I'd never seen anything like this on any uh, cable news, unless it was some, you know, breaking event, a plane had crashed, you know, some something something like a plane crashing, <laughs> like, like Donald Trump being elected president of the United States. My guest uh, on my podcast uh, here today is Eddie Glaude, a professor and actually the chair of the African-American Studies Department at Princeton University, um, an incredible author. Uh, he wrote the book Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. And he has a, a new book out this week, a brand new book, which I just read. Uh, here over uh, over the weekend. It's called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Welcome, Eddie. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you, man. That morning, if you, re you do remember. Oh, I remember it like yesterday. And to share that time with you in Anand, it, it, was, it, was, it was good for my soul because even though I had anticipated Trump's um, um, victory. Um, I did so only in the hopes that I would be horribly wrong and proven wrong by the American people. And, um, and so to sit on that panel that morning and, and to um, listen to your analysis of it was um, in some strange way comforting. <laughs> it, uh, when, during a week when there was very little comfort to be had, do you mind just sharing your thoughts um, in those 72 hours after uh, Trump's election? Uh, because uh, it, that, that week was, was an intense week. And that morning, sitting there with you, was profoundly intense. And I'm just I'm curious where you were at. And maybe if you could just share with people who didn't see that uh, episode of, of Morning Joe, uh, what you what you felt like in terms of what you were sitting, you were in the midst of, of not just that show, but in the midst of an America that that said um, that said to you, to me, to many people, but especially if if you are not white, that night after the um, after we um, did the show. Uh, I had dinner with some friends, and one of the friends and people at the at the table was Lynn Nottage, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, playwright, wonderful writer, and she started to cry, and and it, it felt so. She said, "I I I I have had the sense this week that I've got the message. That I've got the message that um, I'm not wanted." And I'm not valued. And I get it. 
wow, it just, it was so, so I haven't had a chance really to talk to you about what you were going through emotionally and, and every other level of, you know, of how we were processing this, but. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was, I was in a state of, of disbelief because I was moving through different, um, how can I put this, Michael? I was in different arenas, different sites. So I spent that night um, calling the election or analyzing the, the results as they came in on Amy Goodman's show, Democracy Now. And I remember as we were sitting in, in real time and we realized that Donald Trump was going to win. And I whispered, oh, shit. And I, I was, Amy looked like she saw a ghost. Um, and, and we realized that, that, that the country had actually done this, right? And the next morning I was supposed to be on, on Morning Joe. This is before, this is before our, our show. Um, and they had a live audience. And the audience was made up of folk who were obviously Clinton supporters. And it was as if we were at a funeral. You know, people were just stunned. They were in a daze, you know, like some um, like some tragic event had happened and people were trying to process um, um, uh, the, the, the consequence of it all. Um, and then 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 we were together. I think a couple of days later or a day or so later and trying to talk about what this meant for the nation. And that I was feeling at the time, because I had, I had been advocating for, uh, to push the Democratic Party left, wanted uh, uh, the Clinton folk to do more with regards to putting forward a progressive agenda, that they couldn't take black voters for granted. I had written in Democracy in Black that if the Democratic Party had failed to do so, then we should blank out. Um, and, and, and the like, if, if you lived in, in decidedly red states so that we could impact, impact uh, the 2020 convention. Um, and I was like, over and over again in my head, Michael, I was saying to myself, how could I overestimate white people? How could I overestimate them? I, I did not believe that they would elect someone so obviously underqualified to be president of the United States. But that's not the issue. You know, and I just kept saying to myself, how could I do this? And so when we got together um, and that conversation began to to happen, and I remember Joe telling me to just listen to you, right? Listen to you. Um, and then you remember when we looked up, everybody from behind in the control room had come out? Yes. And and so we had the, the floor was full of folk who had just come out of wherever they were. To, to, to watch, the, to witness the conversation. And I just, even in the midst of the conversation, I just kept, I keep, I remember, kept, I kept saying to myself, they did it again. They did it again. I'll be damned. Mm. Yeah, this was a, that morning, there was no audience, uh, but um, 15, 20 minutes into it, there was an audience of people who yeah. had just come in um, from wherever in, at NBC, at MSNBC, um, and just stood there. It, um, but I, re I remember, I remember thinking too that, that, 
Um, what I was trying to say in terms of why did Michigan, why did why did Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, why did these states you know, go for go for Trump, and what what I had understood um, in terms of what I'd witnessed during the months leading up to the campaign, and um, and there were things that just weren't being reported, uh, and, and people were were kind of just taking a lot of things for granted, including the candidate. And she didn't come to Wisconsin. She came, I think, once to Michigan, but basically stayed out of Michigan. And um, it was it was very surprising, I think, to a lot of people, and um, and depressed the vote in the sense that uh, Clinton only lost Michigan by an average of two votes per precinct. Yeah, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah, it was uh, political malfeasance. Yes, <laughs> on so many levels. But anyway, yes, anyway. yes. Is there a thing? Can we call malpractice at all? <laughs> in political parties. I'm just curious. There's a law that allows um, the people to sue, but um, so in these in these now um, almost four years going on uh, four years, uh, you and I and others have had to live through this. Um, have we lived through it? That's a great question. Um, I mean, we're still alive, but. Yeah. But yeah. where? But now, looking now, we have four years of uh, institutional knowledge, as they say, of of what this has been like, and and what you know we're going to do or what we are doing. I hope uh, to prevent this from happening again. And as I've said many times in this podcast, I never take Trump for granted, right. and um, and it's and we already have seen the effects of when we or others, you know, have done that. Well, I mean. What we've witnessed, and as you know more than, better than most folks, um, uh, is the kind of erosion of democratic norms, um, a kind of uh, license for, uh, uh, for folk to, to rob the public coffers. We've seen an intensification of, of uh, racial animus, uh, you know, the partisan divide that was uh, so much a part of the story of 2016, we knew that we knew then that that partisan divide was really a way of tracking deep, deep racial divisions in the country. Um, uh, institutions of our democracy are, have been weakened, if not, uh, you know, uh, how can I put this? Uh, being a country boy from Mississippi, I guess I would say that it's like the termites have eaten the wood. You just it looks like it's 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 OK, but just step on it. You know, um, so the foundations of, of, of the institutions of American democracy are in real jeopardy. So, I mean, we've lived through it. I suppose we're surviving. But, you know, the moment is 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 um, is one of real danger for 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 the country. And, you know, this election cycle, as as some were clamoring for bold visions uh, for uh a response to the crisis at the scale of the level of the crisis, uh, we saw forces at work in the political process that that really clung to the to the status quo, uh, and so now we have to figure out how to do two things simultaneously, and that is get Trump out of office and insist on a new way of thinking about how this country will work, because right now it's decidedly broken. You uh, you talk, <clears throat> you write in your book here, Begin Again, 
um, that this this new way that we need, I think you call it a, a third founding um, of this uh, country. Um, uh, describe what you mean by that, uh, because I found I found it, uh, uh, it it really stimulated a lot of ideas in my head in terms of, of there's the sort of um, the short term thing that we need to do the, the year that we're in right now. And, but then there's the much larger thing, the, the, what I call the thing that gave us Trump, that Trump didn't fall out of the sky, that, you know, if we don't deal with that too, then we are destined to just repeat what we've been through. So just, just explain to people what, what you mean by a, a third founding. I think most of us learned in school when the first founding was, uh, but maybe explain the, the second and then the, and tell what you mean by the third. So, you know, the second founding is, happened in the context of the Civil War and Reconstruction and Radical Reconstruction. So here the country, the, the contradiction at the heart of the nation, the serpent wrapped around the legs upon which the Constitution was signed or the Declaration of Independence was signed was, was slavery, and that serpent threatened to swallow everything whole. Um, and the country came to blows, introduced modern warfare to the world a level of carnage the world had never seen before as brother turned against brother um, over the issue of slavery. And in the context of reconstruction and radical reconstruction more, more specifically, uh, there was an attempt to, to literally found uh, uh, a multiracial democracy because in the context of the Civil War, we get um, the emergence of, the, of, of what we call the modern U.S. nation state. So historians call this the second founding because you get the modern conception of of American citizenship. You get the idea of, 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 of taxation that allows, uh, you know, the country to connect one coast to the other. Uh, you get um, a range of policies that move us out of our particular states and locales to a much more robust um, understanding of the federal government. Um, and, and so in the process of this happening, we get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments passed, which really changed the ground of, of, of how we imagine the American polity. But in the midst of that, right, Stevens and others going back to our first works, trying to do our first works over, trying to resolve the contradiction at the, at the, at the initial founding, then had to face immediately what a counter-revolution, right? And that counter, that rearguard action involved doubling down on, on the ugliness of race, right? And so you get in the second founding the response of Jim Crow, the passage of, um, uh, of racial apartheid laws in the South. Um, you see convict leasing, right? Um, you know, we think we're talking about, you know, the recent uh, decision to remove the battle flag, Confederate flag from Mississippi state flag, right? That, was, that decision was made in 1894. When the first laws of Jim Crow were being passed, and of course, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which won't get overturned to 1954, would Brown be the Board of Education. So the second founding is this extraordinary moment in which the modern U.S. nation state comes into being, and there's an attempt to found a multiracial democracy, but then the country betrays it. It turns its back on it by doubling down on our ugly racial commitments Lost cause actually wins out. Jim Crow takes hold of the South. De, de facto desegregation continues to define the North. Uh, racialized imperial ambition across the globe 
at the very moment, Michael, as we as the very moment in which we are consolidating a racial regime in the South, we are incorporating millions of black and brown people across the globe as a result in the Philippines and Cuba and the like as a result of our imperial ambition. So Anglo-Saxonism takes off and takes root. The empire of liberty looks a different way in some ways. So that's the second founding and its betrayal. What we need is a third founding. And what I mean by that is we need to tell ourselves this different story about who we are. Right? We need to think about um, uh, a different way of imagining the public good. What are our responsibilities to each other? To turn our backs on the noxious views around race to stop saying that we want to invite people to the table and understand that the damn it, the table that we have was built by all of us, right? It's not yours to invite me to sit down at it. I helped make it. Um, and to begin to, to think about at the level of story and then at the level of policy, how do we uproot, right, this point that you made earlier, uproot this idea that because you're white, you ought to be valued more than others in this country. Um, and that's gonna require work at the level of policy, work at the level of symbol in terms of our built environment, um, and work at the level of story in terms of what is the American story? How do we tell it? Um, and, and all of this will, of course, require some really hard work um, and hard questions and answers uh, for us. That's our moment, it seems to me. What does that work involve? What do you think, what is it that we need to, people listening to this right now, I say, well, what can I do? What What is it that, you know, can I do something beyond just voting or just, uh, you know, even uh, protesting in the streets or whatever? All of these things, obviously, I don't mean to say just because voting and protesting are like two of the critical things that we need to be doing right now. But um, I'm just, yeah. as I read this, I just thought, yes, yes, a, th- a third founding that that we, we're going to get one more crack at redemption here. And... Um, and that we're going to be living in a different, we already are living in a different country. Um, you know, I try to, I say this to fellow white people uh, all the time. You do know that uh, <clears throat> there's a clock that's ticking here. And uh, the, <laughs> I think it's like every September for the last eight or nine years, um, the majority of first graders entering school in the United States of America have not been white. Um, and that sometime in the 2040s, white people are going to be the minority, not the minority in terms of, um, I, I, I mean, just to be honest, I think that, uh, economic power and, uh, right. and who's going to be calling the shots will, will not just end on New Year's Eve 2042. <laughs> um, right. but, but the actual numbers of people, the actual numbers of eligible voters, are not going to be white. And so what kind of America do you want to live in at that point? And why not start living in it now? Why don't, why don't we just, why don't we ramp up, ramp up to this new day? And, and as you say, why don't we consider a third founding of this country? And, and cause we know what we got wrong. Why don't we make an attempt starting right now to get it right? And, and to do that, like just, off the top of your head, what would be some of those things we could actually attempt to do now in the 2020s and not wait uh, until the 2040s? Right, right. You know, I think, you know, one of the things we know is that policy drives 
change, it seems to me. It can drive change, right? So we need to be clamoring for policies that actually reject what we've been living under for the last 40 to 50 years, right? What we, you know, as well as I do, that, you know, Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 uh, sealed the death of a particular era of the New Deal, right? And and introduced uh, an idea of, 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 of governance where government was small, its primary function was to secure the defense and the efficient working of the economy. Uh, it eroded um, uh, any idea of a robust sense of the social safety net as it reduced us from being citizens concerned about the public good to just simply being private individuals in pursuit of our self-interest in competition and rivalry with others. And the result of that shift, uh, of course, was the, 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 the devastation of American workers, the exploitation of white resentments and fears, uh, the extraction of resources from communities of you know hardworking communities to to folks who um, who who added no who have really no value add to the economy. Those are those uh, hedge fund managers and all those other folks, right? So we see the expanding of of the wealth gap. We see the deepening of of racial divides. We see an aggressive policing uh, model. What we are experiencing right now, I think, Michael, is the collapse of that particular period. All of that is seen as bankrupt. And the only thing these folk can rely on is their hatred, is to appeal to our fears. And so we have to address this idea that a more just world is a zero-sum game for white folks, right? that they got to give up something in order for us to be a more just society. So the first thing we need to do is start opening up space for a more robust understanding of the public good. Well, healthcare is not defined by where you work, but by a general assumption that we as a society are committed to the value that no one should go broke because they're sick, that GDP shouldn't decline because hospitals can't can't have elective surgery, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, right? So, so part of what we have to do is, I think, on the one hand, and, and this is what uh, you have been doing and others have been doing, is that we have to argue for a robust policy vision to change the center of gravity of the country, right? We have to move it from shareholders, I mean, from stakeholders to shareholders, right? Or is it the other way around? You get the point I'm making, right? From from yeah. from, produ from producers to workers, we have to flip it. Again, we have to, we have to not just simply have a, a, a social safety net, we have to have a, a, a public infrastructure of care. We have to build that. But the reason we haven't built it, the reason why we've dismantled what little we had is because we thought we were taking stuff from hardworking white folk and giving it to lazy, undeserving black folk and brown folk. So at the heart of our policy debates, in so many ways, has been this noxious, insidious understanding of race, of white supremacy. So we have to uproot it because it overdetermines so much of what we do. So the first part of my answer to your question is that we have to advocate for a much more progressive, bold vision of who we are as a country, who we, how we are to be together with each other, what constitutes the public good. Then the second part of that involves this, you know, and this is what makes this, this, this moment so interesting to me as protest uh, uh, about the public lynching of George Floyd and the brutality of police, uh, how that protest has, has morphed into an attack on public monuments and how we remember, right? Because it's the history that haunts. It's those ghosts continue to move us about. 
And so what does it mean for Princeton to still celebrate Woodrow Wilson or uh, or Yale at one point having John C. Calhoun up or Robert E. Lee to still be uh, uh, standing in, in Charlottesville or or what's happening in Charleston or Nathan Bedford, Bedford Forrest in, in the State House in Tennessee and, and the like. What does it mean for these monuments to still be to still be around in public space? What what are they what are these monuments commending to us? And then to think about those monuments in a different way that we focus on the Confederate monuments. But what about the highways in Chicago? The zoning laws across the country that have produced this segregated society, Michael, where you and I are mysteries to each other because our lives rarely intersect. And when they do, we we say hello, we work, and then we go home and we go back to our segregated networks. How do we begin to tell a story about our being together where, where, where we imagine community in different ways, right? And I was having this conversation with Steve Schmidt the other day, and he was like, well, we want to invite everyone to the table. I said, stop inviting me to your damn table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? So what are the ways? Um because I think that I, I think we are in a, in a, in a very important moment right now. Uh, this particular year, what's happened, none of which we could have predicted um, a few months ago. Um, and yet we could, if our eyes had been open, um, whether you're, whether we're talking about the, the treatment of science and the, I should say the mistreatment of science leading up to this pandemic that we're in, um, the continual um, abuse and violence by police against black citizens. There's nothing new about that. Um, but, and, and of course, Trump, but, but something does feel different in the air. Some, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't. And I, and you, we get these little tiny things every day in the news where, Last night, the NBA announced that when the uh, when they come back into playing basketball, uh, Black Lives Matter is going to be painted on the floor of the arena. Um, the uh, you know every few hours something like that happens, um, and sometimes there's, they feel like ridiculous things. Band Aid announced <laughs> they're, they're going to finally make the band-aids in different shades for all colors of uh, people. They might have left out Asian Americans uh, in that, uh, in that rainbow there, but uh, it, 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 it's, but every, you know what I'm saying, right? Every day now there's, there's something going on or some, you're watching a commercial and you think it's a, it might be, it might be a political ad for, from, you know, uh, from the NAACP or whatever, and it's from Procter and Gamble. Um, it's like, what's going on here? I mean, just well, your university. Uh, you mentioned uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, this past week uh, took his name down. Uh, this is considered a, one of our important presidents, and and yet there there is and people are like, why why is his name gone? Uh, and I was going to ask you at some point in this uh, conversation to just give a, just a, a brief Princeton history and, and Woodrow Wilson history as to why that happened. But I'm just my point is, is that that um, there is something in the air. While I laugh at some of, of this, I am I also realize that 
um, when you've got all the good old boys at NASCAR uh, taking down the Confederate flags and and pushing uh, Bubba Wallace's car uh, onto the onto the track and standing behind him, you you're like the cynic in you wants to say, okay, you know, more uh, window dressing, uh, more icing, uh, but. But then the optimist in you starts to go, hmm, maybe something is happening and maybe we should seize the moment. I'm curious your thoughts on all of that. Well, something is happening, you know, um, something is different about the moment. I think um, there's a generation, millennials and Gen Zers who have grown up, who've come of age in the midst of catastrophe, you know from Katrina to the Great Recession, to mass school shootings, to police murders, to pandemic, to economic collapse, right? Student loan debt surpasses credit credit card debt. They're moving home, jobs aren't available. So they're growing up, right, in, in, in a moment that um, uh, uh, seems to suggest that, that the country's broken. And, you know, they some of them end up in the Bernie Sanders campaign or sell, you know, or working with Jill Stein or, or being a part of Occupy and Black Lives Matter. Others turn out to be like Richard Spencer or Dylan Roof, right? Or identifying with the Boogaloo Boys or something like that because they know whatever this is, is not working. So there's that judgment, I think, that's happening. Um, I think there's some fundamental, there's a fundamental reckoning um, that some are coming to understand that the country cannot survive if it continues to lock up large portions of its talent. Um, that America cannot survive doing, leaving most of its talent off the field, right? In so many ways. Um, it can't compete in the world in that way. And I'm thinking from the vantage point of business, right? They know who they're competing against. They know that they don't have the luxury of, of the devastation of World War II where they're the sole economy functioning at the highest level. Right. They know that the, the, the marketplace, the competition is much stiffer um, and uh, uh, we can't continue to do business as usual. Um, there is there is something different about the moment. And we see activists on the ground who have been organizing for decades, decades. You know, when people hear the defund black police, the defund the police kind of slogan, they think it just came up. No, it's part of the justice reinvestment movement that's been going on for a long time. You and I know what's been happening with, with uh, you know, Fight for 15, with the arguments around living wage. We can, we can just point to all of this work that's been happening daily, right, outside of the camera uh, that then kind of sets the conditions for what we experience. So something is different, but there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. You know, let's put it this way. After the, context, after the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century, social science data showed that there was a decline, a precipitous decline in racist opinion held by white Americans. So the data show very clearly, Michael, that white Americans held less racist opinions, right, as the years passed post the civil rights movement. So their position around same, you know, interracial marriage, their position around, um, um, you know, uh, segregated schools and the like, they were clear that they were against these things. But the social science data also revealed that as these attitudes changed, they became more, um, shall we say, open. Uh, at the same time, there, uh, there is a reluctance to embrace policy to remedy systemic inequality. 
So I'm against uh, segregated schools, but I'm also against affirmative action. I'm against, you, you, see, you see the difference. So what we can see here is perhaps a change in attitude, but we don't know if that actually translates into a support of policy for a more, ra a more racially just society, if that makes sense. And, and when you say policy, what is what could we, you're right, I mean, and, and to people listening to this who have spent years uh, working to raise the minimum wage or uh, to um, uh, stop the militarization of our police departments or, I mean, these are, a lot of these are very local movements too. Um, they're connected nationally and in, in, in kind of a loose way sometimes, and sometimes it's just it's a local union or it's a local, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a small mid-sized city where people are, are, are doing these things. Um, the, the, I, I live in a, in a, a small uh, town up in, in northern Michigan and, um, and people in that town uh, two weeks ago went to the city commission meeting and the county commission and asked that the that they that the police wear body cameras, <laughs> and uh, and the and the police were like, "Oh, okay, that's uh, not a bad idea, actually." <laughs> and it was like it was like one meeting, and they and they kind of the commission decided to just do it. And I thought, well, that's really strange. And 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 again, these were mostly white people. Um, at the at the meeting, I should say the virtual meeting because the city council meetings are held via Zoom. But um, it's it it. I have a sense, and I think that the people who are protesting, and I encourage everybody to keep this going because the more it keeps going, the more we're going to get. I think closer to some change happening. But but you and I, Eddie, we you know we're kind of um, we're kind of uh, humbugs about settling for uh, cos cosmetic changes or or little tiny things that just make everybody feel better. And when I say everybody, I'm talking about white people. But the I think that that um, I'm not I am I'm I'm fit to be tied right now, frankly. I'm so upset and angry and more so than I've ever been and more committed to taking this don't don't go halfway. Don't say it so that it everybody feels okay. Just let's just say it. I've seen you on some TV shows in the last month or two, where um, you suddenly didn't sound like a department chair at Princeton University. <laughs> no offense to Princeton or department chairs in general, but but you were you're a gentle soul in the in the sense of of a, of a good and compassionate. And kind human being, but the rage that's there, and the way that you've expressed the rage in 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 very moving ways, and and I've had uh, friends and family will text me, "Did you just uh, did you just see Eddie on such and such show? Oh my God! Try to get the try to get the the audio or something. It's it was he just he just went for it, and you have gone for it. You have really." You have picked up that ball and moved it down the field in in ways that I don't know if they would have let you or me even, but you carry the ball that way a year ago even. Yeah, you know, 
this has been this has been a hard this has been an exhausting time right yes and i'm talking about your rage yeah you know i've and you know i was been working on this baldwin book and you know baldwin baldwin is always moving between rage and love you know yes let's 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 uh before i was i was just gonna get into james baldwin sure, which is sure. just sort of the thread sure. through this book um but for our younger listeners they maybe or or, or maybe there are are Still, some people who haven't heard of James Baldwin, or they've heard the name, but they don't know quite who he was or what he said or did. And I've I have been fan of such a such a weak word of uh, of James Baldwin uh, since I was young. Just take a minute and and explain James Baldwin uh, to the people listening. Sure, you know he's he's one of America's greatest writers. Uh, born in Harlem, August second, nineteen twenty four. Died. Uh, in, in, in France, December 1st, 1987, of cancer. Um, wrote uh, extraordinary works uh, uh, of nonfiction and fiction, offering an understanding of America um, and its, its, its con- central contradictions. In some ways, I read Baldwin as the inheritor of Ralph Waldo Emerson. You know, on the one hand, you get, you get this extraordinary work like Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, which is a kind of migrant tale. Uh, a, a boy coming of age, uh, trying to to figure out how he's going to exist in a world that that denies him standing because of his race, because of his class position, because of his sexual desire in some ways. And then you get these wonderful essays, notes of a native son, and plays like uh, uh, play like Amen Corner, or novel like G- Giovanni's Room, which is one of the first novels in, in American. Um, uh, in, in American literature that's explicit about the sexuality of his characters in some ways. Um, it's an extraordinary gesture, you know, writing novels like Another Country and the like. But he's most famous for his uh, 1963 essays, book of essays entitled The Fire Next Time, uh, where he, uh, in effect, um, prophesies the city's, you know, exploding um, and offering us this language of, of love in the face of, of, of his rage, you know? And he's also in the midst of becoming this world famous writer, he's also uh, participating in the civil rights movement, raising funds, became a member, according to his, one of his biographers of Core and SNCC, uh, found himself in Selma on one of the uh, uh, actions uh, confronting Sheriff Clark. Um, and then, lived long enough to see not only the death, the assassination of Medgar Evers and the Malcolm X, but you know, the brutal assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And in some ways, Michael, he, he collapsed, he fell apart, fell to pieces, trying to come to, trying to make sense of, right, how could a nation kill such an apostle of love? Um, and then you get the later work, uh, No Name in the Street, 1972, you know, uh, Devil Finds Work, which is an extraordinary book of essays on, on film. Uh, if Bill Street Could Talk, uh, and of course his last novel, Just Above My Head. So over 7,000 pieces of writing uh, in the corpus, uh, perhaps the one of the most insightful writers about the American enterprise that we've ever produced. Yes, his, his love-hate relationship with a country of his birth, uh, he realized that at an early age uh, that he was not going to 
uh, be allowed to be himself, to live the life he wanted to live, um, left, uh, lived in exile, his own self-imposed exile, and then at a certain point decided that he had to come back and he had to be part of the fight. And um, if, uh, if people have not seen this documentary from a couple of years ago uh, by the filmmaker Raoul Peck uh, called I Am Not Your Negro, uh, about James Baldwin um, and his writings. And it's basically the film is based on his unfinished, it actually was just a, his uh, pitch to his agent about a book he wanted to write and never did uh, because um, well, even he died. But he, um, it's a, if you have a chance to see this uh, documentary, I encourage people to see it. Um, but you, you in this book, um, you weave in and out of this this love hate um, re- relationship, and um, and in fact, it it uh, you talk about how he you talk about the, this need for this third founding of our country, right. and he referred to it more of a we need a, a new Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, explain what what he meant by by that. Right. There's a line in in this in this essay that he wrote. It's a letter, really. Um, upon his resignation from the Liberator, which is a nationalist organization that uh, had expressed anti-Semitic views. And he has this line where he says, I want us to do something unprecedented. And that is create a self without the need for enemies. You know? And there's this, isn't that a powerful line? And, and this, this idea that we could actually imagine ourselves Otherwise, that we could that we could leave behind those categories that bind us, right? Those categories that imprison us. And he's not talking in any kind of sentimental humanist way that we're all just simply human beings. That's not Baldwin at all. But what he's trying to suggest is that we've created these categories that blind us to the human beings that are right in front of us all of their particularities, all of their faults and foibles, their vulnerabilities and their profound joys. And so he's constantly clamoring for a way of living that will put the human being right, as he said once, that will put us right. And in some ways, that formulation is a formulation coming out of the academy that we would call non-domination, right? What does it mean to stand in right relation to one's fellows? And so this new Jerusalem is this idea that we can imagine a world where the fullness of our individuality can be expressed. Where if one expressed a kind of, where, where, you know, where you weren't just simply queer or straight, you know, androgynous, however you want to describe your sexuality, it didn't matter, right? You just lived the life that, you, that was yours and you lived it in relationship with others, in genuine mutuality. Um, and so the new Jerusalem involved a world shorn, right, of, of the ugliness of the modern world. And the modern world, of course, is a world that came into being uh, precisely because of, of, of slavery and, and the greed of capitalism and the like. So, you know, it is his faith, his abiding faith, that wherever human beings are, we have a chance. You know, he constantly said that we were either... We were both miracles and disasters at the same time. I I riff on that by saying we're miracles and sons of bitches, you know. And we have to protect ourselves from the disasters that we've become, 
But we also have to realize that we are miracles, that we can be miraculous at times in how we change the course of events. You quote him, um, this, uh, um, he said, uh, and I'm going to botch this so you can make it right for me here, but uh, that, um, that in order to feel, you really can't feel pain, true pain, unless you're willing to feel the pain of others. Do you know what I'm, the, yeah, what I'm yeah. referring to? Absolutely. Um, I, I found that to be such a profound way to, to look at things because in our own narcissism, we often get consumed with the, you know, the, you know, what I'm going through or the pain that I'm suffering or whatever. And, and, and it's real. It's not that it isn't real. But just maybe just explain to yeah, people this. this that's a great quote, Mike. That. That's a great quote because in some ways he's he's saying to us that our suffering is the bridge. Right. Right. And to crush a serpent, he talks about the way in which our suffering opens us to uh, each other. And in an earlier piece, you know, it, he says that in some ways that if and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, is that if I'm able to tend to your suffering, maybe I can deal with my own better. And that we both can come out of this differently, you know? Um, and it seems to me that, that that's a powerful point. When I was doing the research for, for the book, I was in the Schomburg Library that has his pa- holds his papers, and I came across a little note. It's on a hand, like a little, in those little memo pads from back in the day. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a note to Robert F. Kennedy. It's a note to Robert Kennedy, right? And it's right after um, John F. Kennedy had been, been assassinated. And Baldwin is writing on behalf of that group that met with Robert Kennedy um, uh, 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 earlier in 63. And he's saying, in effect, whatever got in the way of our understanding in that meeting, uh, suffering can bring us together is what we share. And I hope you allow us to share in your grief. And he uses that moment um, uh, in Robert Kennedy's life, in the life of the country, to use it as a bridge so that our suffering can connect each other, where we could see each other's humanity. You know, it's a beautiful. It was a beautiful little note. It's beautiful and it's very powerful. Um, if you know, if we would only be willing uh, to do that. Yeah. I guess we have to do it. I guess in some ways now, the way I'm feeling today, here in July of um, 2020, we don't have a choice. And, um, and our younger people, young adults and teenagers seem very willing, um, to share that, to be part of that grief and to, and to do what, what they can do. I'm talking, you know, young white people, but, but young African Americans also, I, I, am I wrong to have this hope that I have for this, the, the, Millennials and especially these uh, these Gen Zers, um, Zoomers, whatever uh, the name is. <laughs> I, I mean, you're on a campus every day mostly, so you're around uh, them. I'm just I'm curious. Do you do you share that that hope uh, that I have? Because for me, it's not even just a hope. It's a, I'm actually learning, and I'm being inspired, and I'm I'm uh, I'm revved up. Yeah, you know, I I, I think. Yes, you're justified. Um, we can't be Pollyannish about it um, because the ugliness is still still obtains. But I think 
I think it's it's clear to me that they bring a different skill set to, to the table, that they are uh, grappling with the reality of the world as it is, um, that, you know, there's no guarantee that we're going to hand them a world that's better than the one that we were handed, um, uh, that, they, that they are clamoring for something different, you know? Um, it seems to me that that's right. But, you know, you know, Jimmy has this wonderful line, hope is invented every day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's invented every day. Um, and so, you know, we have to figure out how to muster the strength in the midst of all of this shit to keep fighting, you know. Um, and these young folk have to figure out, right, what flourishing means for them. And, you know, they're doing so in the context of the disaster that is Trump. What, what was the temperature in Siberia not too long ago, Mike? The planet is like, is screaming. Right? They're inheriting a planet that is in, 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 in serious jeopardy. Um, this generation in front of us, um, their, their hands are full. Um, and I, we can only hope to be wind beneath their wings, I pray. But uh, Lord knows what they have to do. And they have a right to be angry at the world that they've been handed. Oh, absolutely pissed, you know, to be honest with you. You know, you, you see, we, we've given them a world where, um, uh, you know, these folks living in gated communities are extracting resources. Can you imagine Jeff Bezos is going to be a trillionaire and he's taking health care away from folks who work at Whole Foods? Or has he already taken it? You know, could you imagine, given how much wealth he has, anybody who works for Amazon or, wealth or, 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 uh, or Whole Foods could easily live a middle class life? Easily. Right. But we have people who are hoarding, extracting, right, isolating, constantly engaged in an ongoing effort to eviscerate any idea of the public good in the name of their own selfishness and greed. So they have every right to be angry. Rageful, even. You mentioned uh, capitalism a bit ago. What role does our economic system uh play in this, how much of, of do you think that capitalism is the enemy of the, of the good uh, that we're trying to achieve? And how, and how do we go about this? Because um, as you mentioned, Bezos and others who, just a few, just a handful, <laughs> own uh, you know, more than half the wealth in this country. What, 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 how, do you, how do you come at this? Uh, even though, I mean, I, don't think you're an economist. Yeah. You're the chair of the African-American Studies uh, Department. Um, you also, um, I know you speak a lot about, uh, you know, theology and and its impact and, and history and whatever. But where does capitalism come into play here? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I have a series of intuitions about capitalism, right? You know, I've as a young graduate student, I, you know, I read Das Kapital and, you know, I read my Marx and all this other stuff, uh, but it never, you know, settled uh, in, into my way of seeing the world in some ways. I, it's not a language that comes natural to me, but there is something that comes natural or is organic to how I see the world. And that is a common sense of decency that I, that I get from my mama and my daddy, right? That if you have an economic system 
that presumes that some people are disposable, right? That you can just simply use them up and then discard them. Then that economic system at its root is cruel and evil, it seems to me. And what we have here, folks who are working 40 to 60 hours a week trying to make ends meet uh, and, and making wages where they have to make choices between keeping a roof over their head or putting food on the table. Um, they can't afford to send their kids to school. Uh, it used to be that a high school education would, would give you an opportunity to, to at least live a middle class life. My dad did that. My mother didn't graduate from high school, but my dad ended up working for the post office. And by virtue of that, um, uh, I was able to live a, a middle class life because of what that, you know, the post office meant for us. He was the second African-American hired in, in, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and, and ended up leading the union down there. Um, and so the dignity of work. Uh, instead, we have a system that is all about extraction. Right. And disposability of those. Uh, who who are seen or deemed as less valued. And as long as we have an economic system, uh, um, Mike, that, that functions like locusts, right? We're all in jeopardy, you know? It leaves nothing behind but destruction and devastation. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe in markets. It doesn't mean, um, you know, I, I believe in a command economy. But what it means is, you know, I affirm the sacrality of human life more than anything in the world. And this economic system, right, uh, is plays fast and loose with human beings. And to me, that's disgusting. And what do we do? What do we do about it? We have to begin from a fundamental assumption. And this is an assumption that I don't think we all agree on. That human beings matter more than the acquisition of profit, right? That we matter, right? That human dignity and standing ought to be central values. The sacrality of human life ought to be central to how we imagine the good life in this country. Um, now, I sound like a, 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 a naive moralist in that moment, uh, but the moment in which we begin to devalue people, and I know this, Michael, because I come out of a tradition of people who have been devalued. The moment we begin to devalue people, we open the door for all sorts of cruelty and barbarity. And we've seen it over the course of, of Western modernity. Um, and what we know is that capitalism, as it, as it is currently imagined, is not working. The, in your book here, uh, begin again, the, um, I just, want, I just want, to, want you to just speak to just a few things before we wrap up. Um, Chapter one is called The Lie. Explain explain to our listeners the lie. The lie is this story that we tell ourselves about American democracy as an example of democracy achieved. That Americans are the most virile, the, mo the most just. Uh, that we are a redeemer nation, the shining city on the hill. And it's a, it, it is involved, it involves that, the effectiveness, the, the, the efficiency of, of that narrative that protects us from all the evils that we do and that we have done. Jimmy had this wonderful line in, in a 1964 essay, uh, entitled The White Problem. And, and, and I think this gets at the heart of what I mean by at least one aspect of the lie. He says, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw, Michael. 
They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. For if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie, Jimmy writes, is the basis of our present trouble. So the lies we tell about black folk to protect our innocence, the, the, the ways in which we tell our history in order to hide from view um, um, the stuff that we've done in the world, what we've done in Haiti, what we've done in Cuba, what we've done in the Philippines, right? The stories we tell ourselves that allow us to, to, to be okay with what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? And then the way in which our story works, Michael, the way in which we will malform any story that tries to reveal the reality of who we actually are, right? That's the lie that we have to confront in order to free ourselves, uh, to free ourselves up. And just really quickly, this is really key. You know, the early days of the celebration of the 4th of July, black people were not allowed to go. We were not allowed to attend. In fact, the early days before the 4th of July became a celebrated holiday, a national holiday, it was the day that the American Colonization Society used to raise money in order to ship African, uh, African peoples out of the country. But in New York, one in the 1830s, we showed up to one of the July 4th celebration days and we were physically attacked. Why? Because our bodies represented the contradiction of the celebration. We were the mirror that the nation did not want to look in, look into. Wow. That's yes. It's the lie and the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our past. And that's the importance of this book is what I just love this. I can't recommend this enough to people to, to pick this up and, and, and read it. It's it. Uh, the way that you draw these connections from our past, from our history into, into what we're dealing with um, right now. And it's, um, it's very profound and, and, and very moving. You have another uh chapter called The Reckoning. I love this chapter. Explain to people what The Reckoning is. Um, the Reckoning is, is at that moment when um, the, the, the idealism of the civil rights movement gave way to black power, right? That moment when, uh, you know, I tell the story in the beginning of that chapter, when the Black Panther Party makes the wrong turn, when Bobby Seale and those groups and, and, the, and the Panthers make the wrong turn. They end up uh, in the State House in Sacramento, uh, and they read uh, 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 that statement about the legislation that was being considered to, to you know, in, in, in a way, disarm black folk from protecting themselves against police brutality. And I said, this, is not, this was not King's movement. Um, Jimmy was trying to, 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 to make sense of the darkening of the eyes of all of those young people who risked their lives to change the country nonviolently. You know, there's that wonderful moment in Eyes on the Prize when Stokely Carmichael said in an interview, Kwame Touré said in the interview, he said, uh, we were in the bowels of the South. It wasn't about love. What we saw was raw terror. This wasn't about love. This was about power. And what that meant for the, the tone, the form and content of black politics. And it's important 
that we tell that story, Michael, because what happens in the way in which we, we narrate the black freedom struggle, we tell the story from 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, 1955, Montgomery bus boycott, the emergence of Dr. King, right? You get the nonviolent protests, you get the student sit-ins, which lead to 1960 and the organizing of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You get the height of, of, of the civil rights movement with the March on Washington in 63, the, 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 the drama of Selma in 65, and then King is murdered in 68. But when we think about 65 and 66, Oh my God, there, there's the moment of decline. Stokely Carmichael in Greenwood, Mississippi declares, we are not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to jail anymore. I, what we want is black power. In October of 66, the Black Panther Party is founded in California. And then suddenly, the Watts explodes in 65. Newark explodes. You know, Detroit explodes, right? And then we tell this decline there. We tell the story of decline. Black power, these leather jacket wearing, black glove herring wearing, uh, having beret, black afro wearing, however adjective we want to use, folk who just wanted to tear up the country. When in fact, black power is so much more complicated than that, that, that melodramatic narrative. It's a moment in which, in which black America is trying to pick up the pieces in light of the betrayal. Um, and it calls the country to the carpet. And the country responds with hard hat revolutions, with clamorings for the silent majority to be heard, the forgotten American, call for carceral state. Oh, my God, the devastation of that period. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, I grew up during all of that. Um, I've told this story before in the podcast of my, uh, our mother, I have two sisters, and um, uh, one of whom, by the way, teaches uh, your your books in her uh, college class. She teaches at one of the Cal States oh, wow. uh, out there. And and I told her last night that I'd be talking to you on the podcast today. And she said, just let him talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> said, okay. No. <laughs> so that's why I've been asking you, tell us about the lie. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I've told this. But So my mom... Uh, wanted us kids to learn about our our nation's capital or whatever. So she, the summer, early summer, I think late spring, early summer, 65, drove us to Washington, D.C. And we went to our, our congressman's office and got tickets to get into the into the gallery of the House. I think it was the House. Could have been the Senate. You know, I was, what would I have been? And, uh, I would have just ended fifth grade. Um, wow. And we, they let us in there and we sat down looking down onto the floor and they were debating the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And we sat there for an hour or two watching this historic debate. Um, myself as a, as an 11 year old there, um, it, it had quite an impact on me and, um, the fact that that would be gone at this point, that, that both because of the Republican Senate and then the, the Supreme Court, that essentially what we had is gone. And so much of what has, as you pointed out at the beginning of this podcast, uh, has been um, eliminated, negated. Um, a lot of it we haven't paid attention to because we've been so busy with the, the, the huge things that we've had to deal with with Trump. And we've forgotten or we've missed 
so much. Some haven't, yeah. fortunately. But um, I really think we're at that, what you were describing there when you went through everything of those, um, you know, 20 years, we're at another crossroads here and it really is going to be up to us now. We don't have uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Megar Evers. Um, yeah, by the way, I was, Megar Evers' uh, widow is still alive. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And Elders, she was yeah. in the news yesterday when the Mississippi removed the Confederate flag as part of their state flag and, and what that meant to her, um, with her husband being assassinated there in Jackson, Mississippi. It, it, um, it's, you see, it's not that long ago, is it? Really? No. And no. we had Barbara Lee on last week and her, her grandfather, her grandfather, just her grandfather was born a slave in the final weeks before Juneteenth on, in 1865. And, and I've, talked here about how my grandfather was born in 1868, just three years after the Civil War. So when we talk about what the Civil War, what slavery, what all that means to today, it's not like ancient history. It certainly isn't with me. The stories from my grandfather from the 1860s just went just went down one generation to my mom and then to, and to me. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not like, um, at least for me, these... These were stories that felt very real and very alive and still with us. And so here we are, and here we are at the end of this, at this podcast that, you know, I'm so, I don't know what the word is. um, Am I desperate? Am I, am I uh, so anxious? Am I, am, am I, have I been let down so many times before that, we're, are we just in another moment to be let down again? Or is this something different? And and ha- are we making it different? And and what can we say to others, others who are listening to this, to draw upon that which we've lived through, that the history that we should all know, the history that's in this book here, what can we do now um, to really take this thing home, really make change, real change occur. And yes, remove Trump. We're all on board. But we know that there's much more to do. But I don't want to, in saying that, make it seem like it's so overwhelming that we can't do it. So, you know, in your final words, in your (laughs) final, and I, and I, I'll bring this up again, because I have seen, I've seen this, maybe rage is the wrong word, but I, I because you're not uh, you're not a, a person that speaks with rage, yet when you when you speak and when you write, it is piercing, and I think we're the better for it, and we need you to continue doing this. Sorry to put this on your shoulders, but um, you know, as you leave us today, what can you leave us with? Not the as I say to people, not the hopey hope stuff, but the but the real deal, the real world thing that's in front of us, but and the power that maybe we don't even know that we have to fix things. Well, I you know I don't want to um, be um, presumptuous enough to 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 think I have any any answers. I know what I believe in my heart, 
And, and that is that we're in, a, we're in a moment of profound possibility and crisis. Um, it is different, Michael. There are folks in, the, there are different folks in the street, different kinds of people, different races, different generations. Um, we're in a moment because this place is broken. But the question for us is, will we choose safety or will we risk, risk everything? Will we choose the, the illusion of comfort in safety or will we risk everything to try to build a more just world? That's the thing. So people will tempt us to take the bribe of safety. They're going to tempt us to say, take this little, this little gesture. They want us to tinker around the edges and leave the status quo alone. We know if we do that, we're choosing death, right? So my advice is to ask for everything, to demand for everything, to fight for everything, to shoot for the moon, to shoot for the stars. And if we land on the moon, then damn it, we've done something, right? So we have to risk everything because the future depends upon it. It's in our hands. So the moment is different. Will we give birth to a new America? It has everything to do with whether or not we're going to take full responsibility for our tasks to bring it into, into existence. I, I, I hope we can do it. I pray that we I can. don't think we have any choice. Boom. We do have to ask for everything. This is not the moment to compromise or to hold back or to try and play nice. Not that we're not nice people. I'm just saying that... Um, it is the moment to ask for everything that we need to make this a better country and a better world, to be a better people. But it will also require us risking everything. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just the, the young people who are in these protests every single day, risking their lives during a pandemic. And history, history will record this, that during a pandemic, when everybody knew they had to stay inside and not be near other people, took that risk of getting sick of potentially dying because this was more important that we simply were not going to witness another lynching again. And of course, since George Floyd, we've had to watch other killings, both in, in real time, but also from what happened six months ago or a year ago, last August with, with um, uh, Elijah McClain in Aurora, Colorado, unbelievable vicious murder right. of a of a gentle soul it, it 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 um but it can't be just that yes we have to reform the police and yes we have to stop this violence and all this but but it's um how what do you how do you say this to people because i always feel like i'm 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 presenting a big bag of of things that have to get done and it seems like we're not gonna get any of it done how how, mm-hmm. how do you how do you communicate this to people so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming where people just get just it just swamped by the magnitude of what we have to do one one step at a time yeah one step at a time yeah one task at a time and you know the thing is i i, I have this moment in, in in the book mike where i say you know i've dedicated my life to studying african-american religion and one of the things that i that i've come to 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 understand and to really hold tight to my spirit is is 
there was nothing about the condition of slavery which suggested to those who were enslaved that the world could be any, any different. They knew the world was what it was. They knew slavery was what it was, right? Um, they had no real sense of what freedom was outside of looking at those folk who held, who held absolute power over them. But when they looked in the eyes of someone who held their heart and they saw love, or when they saw the smile in their children's face, even how fle- even if it was fleeting, it gave them the ability to imagine that the world could be otherwise. You know, that gave them the ability to imagine that the world could be otherwise. So even given the magnitude of slavery, right, holding on to that ability to see beyond the opacity of now. So take one step at a time, right, one task at a time, right, one moment at a time. And you know, if all of us are doing that simultaneously, do you know how large that is? How focused that is? And what's so beautiful about this podcast is that we're standing in solidarity with each other, telling the truth without any syrupy sentimentality, without any of the, we're standing in solidarity saying out loud that we want to risk everything for a more just world. Refusing to take the bribe. And we're going to do that one step at a time. That's correct. And that I wake up every morning with that, with that. I don't, I hadn't put it that way, but that's exactly just look at each day as one step, but every day has to be a step for me at least. Yeah. Um, because I, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live in a country like this anymore. And as I've said, I'm not going anywhere. So therefore indeed, it has to change. Not me. It has to change. Hallelujah. So, uh, <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> so um, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Princeton, your university, has taken his name down off a couple of buildings. I don't know if there was a statue or whatever, but but uh, he's now gone. And, you know, when I was in school, he was considered not one of the greatest presidents, but one of the he was the president during World War One. And of course, then as I got older and you read about World War One and you read about how he told uh you know, the suffragettes that they had to wait uh, for the vote because of the war. And so all these other things. And, and then you start to read about his, his racism and it's, it, and um, I didn't know he was from the South, but maybe it just explained to us because uh, you had mentioned Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson earlier. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, the modern, modern Princeton, um, Princeton as a modern university came into existence because of his leadership. Eight years as the president. Um, in some ways, I think he, he's responsible for building the graduate school, um, really pulling Princeton out of a kind of uh, narrow kind of party school into a serious intellectual, intellectual space. Um, so Princeton's self-identity is bound up with Woodrow Wilson. Um, um, and, but, you know, Princeton didn't accept, admit its first African-American student in 1945 much later than Harvard and Yale and Brown and, and Cornell and, and the like, you know, Princeton often says, thank God for Dartmouth <laughs> because it's often, <laughs> you know, at least we don't have a Dinesh D'Souza, but I'm just kidding. No, no, not actually I'm not. Uh, but, but um, the, you know, this idea of Princeton being the Southern Ivy, you know, Jimmy uh, couldn't stand, you know, he actually worked a little bit outside of Princeton, couldn't stand this place. There's a story where he was in one of the diners on Route 1 right down the street from Princeton 
where a waitress refused to serve him and he threw a glass at her head and broke the glass and had to run for his life. Um, um, that's Princeton. Princeton wouldn't admit Paul Robeson. He had to go to school down the street to, to, to Rutgers. So even as they talk about how important Woodrow Wilson was to the university, he brought his noxious racist views, uh, which, were, which found a home here. Um, and so as the first Southern president to be elected after the Civil War, he resegregated uh, the federal government, uh, D.C. Um, um, uh, he um, uh, did a screening of Birth of a Nation uh, and, and celebrated that, 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 that film, which was uh, ironically, you know, uh, inaugurated American film, but was rooted in a profound lie about Reconstruction, right? Um, so there, there's so much about how profoundly racist Wilson was that to tell the story about him without grappling with that is not just simply a moral blindness, but an egregious moral error. And so I think what Princeton has decided to do is to say that Wilson is important to its self-understanding, but we don't want to commend his values to, to our students. He represents what we were, not what we are and what we aspire to be. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm, wow. That is a good way to put it. That does it. Um, sorry, I kept you so long. Man, I could talk to you all day, Mike. Appreciate you, man. I, well, please come back and do this again, okay? This is a. Uh, uh, thank you, Eddie Glaud, for being part of this podcast. Um, I've, I've wanted to have you on uh, since, the, since the beginning. And uh, we're only uh, we're only four months, a uh, little over four months old, and uh, but it's been a uh, it's it's been a real pleasure uh, to talk to you, and also um, thank you for writing uh, this book. It's called Begin Again, and um, and I encourage everybody uh, to pick it up. Uh, Eddie is the is the is the chair of the. Um, African American Studies Department at Princeton University. Uh, his other uh, books, uh, check them out too: Democracy and Black, etc. Uh, it's uh, um, keep doing what you're doing. It's so important, uh, and uh, and and we'll be there with you. Glad to. I'm I'm blessed to to walk this journey with you, bro. Let's just keep fighting. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks so much, and thanks everybody uh, for listening to Rumble today. I'm Michael Moore, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, in a, in a couple of days. And, uh, we've just passed our, our 12 millionth, uh, listener, 12 million downloads of this in these four plus months. Thank you to all of you who keep, uh, listening and keep telling others about this podcast. Um, be well, be safe, and uh, we'll talk, we'll talk soon. <laughs>